Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hi, I'm Emily Roger, host of the Boiling Point podcast. My co-host, Dave Vale, and I will bring you thoughtful discussions with leaders who are positively impacting our world. This is The Boiling Point, where leadership and inspiration meet. Dave, we're back. How are you today? I'm good. I decided I had like an hour window between this interview and what I was doing previously. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go for a run. And uh, I don't know what is in the air. I mean, it was beautiful, cold. But uh, I started sneezing when I got back and I can't quit sneezing. <laughs> so it might cause a problem here. I'll push mute for sure when that happens. But it's, you know, it's nice to get that midday run in because it was just going to be later. And I got a whole bunch of energy for this. And I can say, because I think you're going to ask me, what have I been doing over the last month? Usually I ask you. I went up to the Yukon Territory celebrated an 80th birthday with my mother, and then uh, went to Nashville. So I finally done some traveling. Usually it's you doing the travel, but all good, fun stuff. And uh, I think you and I have a different perspective on flying. I, I was I was <laughs> lamenting to you. I was saying, man, I am so like, I'm so tired because it was like way too long to get in and out of places. But yeah, so that's been my month. How about you? What's, what's nice. exciting for you? Well, and it's uh, touching back in your run. I actually got out for a walk uh, before this because I was like, I just need some fresh air and to move. And my allergies, I'm like, normally I have spring allergies, but fall allergies, this is a whole new thing. And I don't know what is out there in the air, but like, my gosh, so I feel you on that. Um, what is new with me? I actually don't think I've I've traveled since the last time we would have chatted, which only would have well, been that last is odd. That um, is- <laughs> it's only it's only been a week. <laughs> actually, I was up to you know where I did travel to this past weekend was I was up in Miramichi in New Good. Brunswick and uh, got to partake um, in the striper bass tournament so I was invited up there I wasn't a uh, I wasn't in competition um, but got invited out with the organizer of that and got to learn about a completely new fishery to me and it was funny because I actually got to fish with conventional gear where normally I only fly fish and so it was even this thing of like how do I even use this But no, I have lots of travel coming up. But for right now, I am just enjoying fall and being in New Brunswick and everything that the season brings and just being here. Yeah, lots of beautiful colors. Well, that's yeah. cool. We got up to the Miramichi, one of my most favorite places in the entire world. It's incredible. Gosh, yeah. it's so beautiful. And like, what an amazingly friendly community. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, it was so nice. Okay, so today we have Quentin Casey on The Boiling Point. Quentin came to us through our uh, Director of Communications and Marketing and good friend Dave Stonehouse. And Dave and Quentin used to work together, I guess, uh, years and years ago and still do a little bit of work together. Quentin, welcome to The Boiling Point. Hi. Hello. Thanks for having me. 
We, uh, right before you, well, we started <clears throat> recording and we uh, were chatting. I commented on your artwork in the background and the diversity between the, the book cover of your latest book, Net Worth, and then all of your beautiful paintings and pictures from, I assume, your children. My finger paints, my personal finger painting collection. <laughs> So that's what you do. Dave goes for a walk before you just whipped up some artwork to make sure your background. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, come on. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks very much. I I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. And we have we have uh, we have we have friends in common, meaning uh, Dave Stonehouse, who's listening in, and uh, I'm sure you can weave a story about him in here somewhere. Um, as he hired you and I had, I had the good fortune of him. I don't know if they really called hired, but, uh, you know, he kind of hired me to do a column years ago in the Telegraph Journal, uh, a provincial newspaper in New Brunswick. And, uh, and he hired you and, and you haven't, you haven't looked back. You've had this pretty prolific career as we, as we look at your bio and stuff. Tell us a little bit about your background, Quentin. Sure. Yeah, no, uh, I owe Dave a lot. Actually, he's had a really big impact on my career. Um, you know, he gave me my first job there at the Telegraph Journal, and that was an awesome place to start out as a journalist. Uh, there were a lot of young journalists there at the time, so it was a great sort of like uh, um, learning ground to learn everything. And just one story about Dave. Um, I'd only been at the TJ like three months, and he asked me to do this week-long uh series on healthcare that was uh, changes that were coming in New Brunswick. The health minister said there were going to be all these changes. So Dave wanted to look at, well, if there's going to be changes, what should we change? And so I was sort of calling all these experts and, and healthcare people, um, you know, and every day we had a story come out about a different uh, thing. So the, the series did win an Atlantic Journalism Award. So that was pretty cool. Um, and so when I went up to get the award, uh, I was nervous and didn't really know what I was saying. So then when I get back to my seat, my wife said that I thanked Dave three times and didn't mention her at all. So this is something <laughs> she mentions all the time that, oh, yeah, you thanked Stonehouse like three times. You didn't mention <laughs> me. So, um, yeah, no, Dave, Dave's been a, a really great big figure in my career for sure. And uh, so I grew up in Halifax, uh, went to Dalhousie University, and I was the editor of the uh, the Dal paper there. And that sort of got me into the got me the journalism bug. And so I went to Western. Uh, did a journalism degree, uh, worked at the National Post there, did an internship there, and then got hired by Dave. So yeah, that was, yeah, it's crazy to think how long ago that was now, but like, yeah, almost 18 years ago that I sort of started in the journalism trade. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, for someone who likes interviewing other people, and we're going to get into, you know, your latest book and, and that sort of thing, what's it like to be interviewed? Does it, is it, uh, are you as comfortable? Like, is there one side of the table you prefer to be on or uh, are both equally comfortable? Uh, no, I definitely, I, I just like naturally, my personality is more like if I'm in conversations, I prefer to like ask more of the questions and and that kind of thing. So yeah, it's, it's, it's very different for me. And I do like, you know, asking the questions and, you know, digging into people a little bit, but it's, um it's always fun to have it be reversed because I, it's, when you do it yourself and then you see how other people approach it, you always learn a little bit too about it, about the interview process and, and that kind of thing. So yeah, no, I enjoy it. Okay. Yeah. As you know, what's interesting about that, Emily, that would be like, uh, so we're both executive coaches is like, you know, you, and you, and you 
similar to to uh, to to being a, an interviewer, a journalist, or whatever, you you have a natural curiosity. And then to be on the other side when someone's coaching you, man, you can learn a lot. Like it's pretty, it's pretty amazing um, from that perspective. Um, but I, but I do find I much prefer asking questions. <laughs> Emily's asked me to be a guest in a, on an upcoming episode, and I'm already like kind of feeling nervous about it. <laughs> and I'm not sure if I really like. Well, what am I going to talk about? <laughs> like, I much rather ask the questions. You don't know this, but Quentin's also going to be on here, and then he's going to write a book about you. <laughs> oh yeah, that'll be good. <laughs> it won't. It won't be net worth. I can tell you that much right now. <laughs> Yeah. And so with that, Quentin, your latest book, so you have written three books, your latest one, Net Worth, it came out this past summer. And you wrote it about John Risley. That's right. Yeah, no, it came out in June. And uh, it's been doing pretty well. Uh, so far, it's in a second uh, print run. And you no, know, I guess that's sort of not surprising, um, in a way, just because John Risley is such an interesting guy and a lot of people are have been sort of fascinated with him for years. You know, in Nova Scotia, he's pretty much a household name. And if someone says, oh, Risley did this or Risley did that, people know who you're talking about without the first name. So, um, yeah, it's sort of not surprising that people want to know a little bit more about, um, you know, how he's done the stuff that he has done. And so for context for our listeners who are not Maritimers, tell us who John Risley is. And then I'm curious as to why did you want to write a book about him? John Risley is really one of the most dynamic Canadian entrepreneurs, um, you know, even beyond Atlantic Canada. He's really, the stuff he's done uh, globally, you know, he's on par with really anyone else in Canada in terms of entrepreneurship. So um, he grew up in Halifax and uh, his mom was a war bride that came over from England. Um, his dad died when he was 15. You know, his family was middle class, but they sort of struggled a little bit with money um, after his father died. And so his childhood ambition was to become a millionaire. So that's what he's always been very money focused. Um, and he went to Dal, he dropped out of Dal, had a bunch of businesses that, you know, just sputtered and failed. And eventually he started with his brother-in-law, uh, a lobster pound on the side of the Bedford Highway, just outside Halifax. And so that became Clearwater Seafood. So they started just selling lobsters um, out of tanks. Like they were in their like uh, hip waders and stuff like lobsters in the tanks. But from that, Risley completely transformed the lobster fishery in Atlantic Canada. It was like a $50 million business back then. It's like $3 billion today. And it's like a huge driver of the Atlantic Canadian economy. So no one's more responsible for that growth than him. Um, but then he he used that base to build other businesses. So he started Ocean Nutrition, which was a nutraceutical omega-3 oil company. And they sold that for almost 600 million to a Dutch uh, pharmaceutical company. And um, he started Columbus Communications. And this is where he made most of his money. So um, he's really known as like the lobster guy, but Columbus Communications started as like a one country cable company in the Caribbean. And it basically they built cable fiber optic network throughout the whole Caribbean and like Northern Latin America. And long story short, uh, Columbus was in, ended up being involved with two like multi, multi-billion dollar um, deals. So um, it was just an enormous um, windfall for him um, personally. And um, yeah, he's known as lobster guy, but he's done so many other things. And, and today he's got businesses all over, all over the world. Amazing. There's a lot there. 
But for you personally, Quentin, was there something that really appealed to you about his story that you thought, I'd like to dig into, I'd like to learn more about this guy? Yeah, I can't, it's it's hard to explain what really grabbed me about it. I just, it got in my head that he would be a good person to write about. You know, there's a few factors there. Like he is well known, like it's hard to write about someone who no one knows about. And people are always a little bit fascinated with rich people. And, uh, you know, he's always been known as like the Nova Scotia billionaire and all that kind of stuff. So there's a little bit of intrigue there. And people like to know some of the behind the curtain stuff when people have a lot of money, the jets, the super yachts, that kind of stuff. And he has all that. So, uh, you know, lots of houses. So people like that kind of stuff. And no one had written about him before. And that really surprised me because, Hmm. um, you know, it turned out that people had tried to, but he had sort of shooed them away and he hadn't been interested in that. So, and actually when I was in like the final draft of the book, Grizzly forwarded me an email that had been sent to him from Gordon Pitts, who wrote The Codfathers, which is a pretty, um, you know, for Atlantic Canadian business, sort of like landmark book. And uh, he was just asking Risley, you know, would you ever be interested in a book or something like that? You know, tell your story, that kind of thing. So hammered home the point that he does have an interesting story and he is in his mid 70s, too. So, you know, at a certain point, everyone from this sort of like cohort, people he worked with, you know, they eventually pass on and then you can't get the stories and you can't get the background. So it seemed like a pretty uh, good time to dig into it as well. Why do you think he said yes to you? Partly because I just kept bugging him. Um, like I'd sent him a few emails and I should say I'd, I'd interviewed him for a few just like quick stories over the years. So I, I had his email and normally you send him an email and he'll get back to you within minutes. And it's, you know, I, that's also an incredible thing about him is how sort of available he is. And you don't have to book his time with an assistant or anything like that. He's just, you just email him. So I emailed a few times and I didn't hear back. Um, and, you know, essentially, I just think he wasn't interested in it. And, you know, he's somebody who over the years could have paid someone to write a really like flowery, glowing, um, you know, autobiography. Um, but he wasn't interested in that. And so eventually I just started um, you know, he didn't get back to me. I just started interviewing other people. So I interviewed first Colin McDonald, who was his um, brother-in-law and co-founder in Clearwater Seafood. So they, you know, they've known each other for like more than 40 years. And that first interview with Colin McDonald, you know, I knew right after that interview that there's like a book because he was very candid, you know, a lot of, a lot of positive things, you know, a lot of complimentary things, but also some comments that made you realize, okay, there's, there's, there's more here to dig into that this is like a real person with flaws and foibles and all that kind of stuff. So that made me realize that this guy is interesting. He's had a lot of success, but he's also pissed some people off and that kind of thing. So yeah, I realized that there was like an interesting portrait to be painted of him. What has his response been to the book? Well, like as I note in the introduction, it turned out that one of his concerns about the whole thing was that he just couldn't understand how I'd make any money which is just so funny because, you know, like that's, that's how he would view everything. And, and he was sort of puzzled by why someone would want to do all this work for something where you're never going to make any money from it. So that was one of his concerns. And then when the book did come out and I should say like, it's wasn't commissioned by him, obviously, and it's like a work of journalism. And so he didn't see it until it was actually printed. He didn't get like a preview of it or anything. So like I delivered him copies at this cafe in Chester where he's a regular and you know, he was with some people, so he didn't have a lot of time to talk, but he's like, his comment was, 
you know, like a lot of work for, for no reward. And like, this was like probably like the 12th time he'd, he'd commented about how I wouldn't make any money. And so I did get a nice follow-up email from him, um, maybe like a month after the book came out. And he said that he didn't really allude to the fact whether he read the whole thing, but he said that what he'd heard was like good, well-researched and, you know, well-written and that kind of thing. Um, and he said, you know, I hope the sales have lived up to your expectations. So he was, you know, it's just funny. He was still on this and yeah, about, you know, not being able to make money. And, and his, his son had a funny quote where, you know, his son said, even if you were going to like character assassinate him in this book, like he probably would have been okay with it as long as it was like a big money maker and a big hit. So yeah, that's just sort of goes to, you know, his way of thinking versus like my way of thinking or, you know, other people's way of thinking when they sort of approach a project like that. Quentin, at the start of your book, you have a quote, and I believe it's from an, an author that wrote about Lyndon Johnson, explore a single individual deeply enough and truths about all individuals emerge. So how does that resonate with you, that quote, in this process of writing around about John Risley? What what started to pop up for you? Uh, yeah, no, I like that quote too. Um, just everybody's unique and Risley's had a very you know unique life and has done a lot of things that a lot of people haven't. But you know, whenever you're talking about people who are successful, ambitious, like hard driving people, um, you know, there's always the flip side of that. So, you know, like Risley is admittedly was an absentee father, wasn't around a lot for his, his kids in like a, you know, physically present, you know, and then, you know, with money, it's money causes problems as much as it helps you out with all the things you can buy. And there's that element of it too. So, I think in exploring Risley's life, there's a lot of somewhat universal truths that come out about sacrifice and being a workaholic and having a lot of money and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think that's sort of where that that's sort of what that quote uh, meant to me. Yeah. And, and sort of why I had it at the beginning to sort of frame the whole thing, you know, with that quote. It's interesting. You talk about, you know, if I, him being a father. And as we start, we talk about the the, the pictures behind you from your kids, right? And the kind of, you know, and how, how, how obviously you're a very driven person, but you're trying to be present to your, your children, it sounds like as well. Um, how do, I wonder how people, like I've always, I thought that's an interesting topic, right? Around being hard driving, you know, um, very successful, but, but the, the, um, the cost that, that can come with that. And, you know, it sounds like there was a, there was a cost for, for Risley. And for, for a lot of individuals that push hard, you know, whether it's an Olympic athlete or whatever, but just that it often can be sacrificing family. Yeah, no, for, for sure. And, and, you know, he admits that for him, business was, you know, all encompassing, you know, he sacrificed everything else in the name of business. And um, he's, he's remarried um, his second wife, um, is an entrepreneur and she's, uh, you know, a little bit younger than he is, but she, you know, she talked, she had some interesting quotes. I thought about how she thinks that Risley and Carl McDonald sort of have sort of has a bragging point about how hard they worked and, you know, like that kind of thing. But that, you know, her point was like, it's nothing to brag about. And, you know, she said that like women, it's not the same for women, you know, like a woman can't just totally, you know, walk away almost like, I'm just going to do all my work. Like, you know, you take care of all the dentist appointments and the parent teacher stuff and going to the sports games. It's like, you know, her point was, you know, like I have to do all that stuff and I have to do all the business stuff, which is obviously, you know, is very true. So like, it, obviously times have changed a little bit because Risley started out like in the mid seventies, but 
um, yeah, you know, it's funny, like with Risley, there's a bit of a, you know, it's like on one hand, he wasn't around a lot for his kids, but you know, they did grow up with a lot of opportunities. Um, like they, you know, obviously they traveled the world and, um, you know, they go on these, um, through, uh, like YPO events with their dad, you know, where they would hear like, you know, the German chancellor speak and they met Donald Trump and, you know, like they, they sort of got to rub shoulders with some, um, you know, some heavyweights, uh, you know, presidents and that kind of stuff. So there's that. And, and also, you know, he largely funds everyone's lifestyle now, um, you know, in the family. So, you know, th there's a trade-off for everything, right? So, um, yeah, it, I think that's an interesting point. And everyone, you know, you had an interesting comment about it, and everyone sort of sees it in a different uh, in a different way. I, I Emily, sorry, I was just going just one comment quickly. I'll just, but I was going to say, I look forward to the the book about someone who somehow the man should do it all. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't even know if it's possible, yeah. <laughs> right? But like, I, I keep on waiting for that because, and and, and I suspect when, you know, uh, it won't be a, a true, uh, you know, kind of real journalism being done um, because there's just trade-offs in life. And it's just interesting to, to hear that trade-off. Sorry, Emily. No, well, even with the real journalism being done comment, like, I am always so fascinated, Quentin, how authors... Like, did you find did you find that you stayed unbiased throughout it? Like, how do you write about someone when you then know so much about them and not be kind of swayed one way or the other? Yeah, I mean that that's like the the thing that you know you sort of. I was just thinking about that like all the time. Like, there's especially in Nova Scotia, you know, there's a lot of people who have a lot of opinions of Risley, you know, a lot of people have very strong opinions about him, um, because he's someone who, he's been in the press a lot over the past, like, 40 years, you know, he's, he likes to speak out on, like, policy issues and that kind of thing, and he can be very blunt, and, you know, frankly, like, he just annoys a lot of people, and it's pissed a lot of people off, and so there are some, like, strong opinions about him, uh, and, and, you know, there's some things about him that, you know, like to your point about staying unbiased, like people would sort of always go on about how, he, you know, he's only successful because he got government money and this kind of stuff. So there's some of those like myths that I wanted to bust a little bit, you know, just to try to, you know, look at things, you know, as they are, like, don't worry about what people's opinions have been about him. Like, what was the, what's the actual like facts here? Um, and yeah, I mean, I have been, people have told me that, you know, they do think um you know that it's you know like it's really not my opinion it's not my opinion like no one cares what my opinion is about John Risley like no one's going to buy a book for that you know I just want to show like here's all the facts this is what these are the people who have known him the best over his life this is what they say so um you know and there's there's obviously things where you know certain things that like that he's done or whatever that you know like personally you might be like geez like what like not very nice or whatever, like, you know, a bit of an, an asshole, to be honest. But, you know, you just have to sort of like put that aside and look at look at the the big picture and, and you know, just try to be as, like I, fairness, like fairness is like the main thing. Like, am I being fair um, is sort of like something I would ask myself like all the time. Hmm. Um, you know, what's what's interesting is you describe him and, and, you know, I'm naturally like living in this part of the world you've heard stories and you know, people that have worked with them and, you know, and, and to your point, Quentin, people are, it, it's kind of a polarizing figure. And I think, 
you know, most of the time that, that happens when you're, you're quite well known or you have, you know, some degree of success. Um, but, um, his, his approach to leadership and, and, and in terms of how he led people, um, you described it as like hands off that kind of, that I find that a little, I, I mean, which is a, is, you know, technically a really good approach to, to leadership, right? Like let people do what they're brilliant at, but in some ways it, it, it's surprising because you might expect the opposite. Mm. Tell me a little bit about, you know, what you learned about his leadership and his approach and this idea that, that, you know, finding talent and just, you know, you know, according you know, to your research where he, he just took a hands-off approach. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's a, a great way of stating it, that it is surprising because I think a lot of people have that impression that people like him, like him specifically, but also other people are very, you know, like my way or the highway, you're going to do it the way I say to, you know, I'm going to hire you, but I'm going to be in the background all the time, making sure you do things right. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. He's not like that at all. Like he's all his businesses. He's had like an operational like partner where he just he finds someone that he's confidence in, who's um, you know has the necessary skills and experience, and just sort of like lets them go. And um, you know, I think that that's definitely uh, you know a good lesson, as as you say. Um, so like in Clearwater. Uh, Colin McDonald was more like the operations guy, you know, making sure the lobsters get out on time. And that gave Risley the opportunity to go over to Europe. He found the whole, you know, he pioneered the whole European market, flying the lobsters over to Europe overnight. And then the Asian market came after that. And then with Ocean Nutrition, you know, Robert Orr was the founding CEO and he was able to run the company, you know, for the majority of the time it existed. And then with Columbus Communications, uh, Brendan Paddock from Newfoundland, he was the, the CEO and the, and the main guy there. And, you know, Risley in all these situations, he's usually, um, you know, big picture strategy, dealing with the bankers, uh, raising all the capital that you need for this, you know, crazy expansion to grow the value of the business. So, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, it's interesting that that's his personality. And I think, like you said, I think a lot of people would would assume that he's just more of a tyrant and, you know, telling people what to do and not letting them sort of do their own thing. And, and I'm guessing that's a big part of his success, like getting guys like Robert Orr and these guys, uh, people in and in, in letting them do what they're they're excellent. At. And like we would run into this uh, for, in a coaching engagements. A lot of times that's what holds people back. Right. They get to that next level. You know, and Emily, we coach people and support them and saying, you know what, you can't know everything about everything. You've got to let work through your people. And I think some people kind of intuitively understand it. Clearly, Risley uh, does or did. But that came up in your research. Yeah. And I think the other thing is, like Risley said, when you are a, like a hands-on person who wants to micromanage everything, then there's a finite amount of things you can do. Whereas when you're able to hand things off and trust people, then the scope of what you can do expands greatly. So he he's always just got like ideas. He always wants to be investing in businesses. So for him, the fact that he can trust people, then he can move on to other things. And so instead of like being super day-to-day hands-on with one business, you know, he has like 12 major, let's say like 12 or 15 major investments in companies that he can sort of hop between very high level and not get bogged down in, you know, like the day-to-day minutia that you know he's more than happy to let a ceo and cfo like take care of 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. So for John, you expressed that the book being profitable is likely what have made the book a success. What does success look like for you with that book? Well, again, it's like, like I told him, like it's Canadian publishing. So like, there's really no chance of making money to begin with. So like, it's not about money. It's like, there's much better ways to spend your time than like writing a book for the Canadian market, unless you're like Robert Munch or something. But for me, it's, I just get so much like personal satisfaction out of like even the process. Like I just, I do wish it paid more because I just love doing it. Like I love coming into my office every day and like just being immersed in, you know, like going through all kinds of articles, going through interviews and that kind of thing and being able to like really drill down. Whereas like day-to-day journalism is just like pop in surface level, you know, try to become an expert in five minutes, but you're not an expert. And then you go into the next story and it's just like this sort of constant cycle of, little bits where this is really digging into it and so that's very rewarding for me in itself but then you know I have been really happy that the sales have been good like it's in a a second printing and you know I've gotten a lot of feedback from this just like sort of personal like emails and people reaching out to me on LinkedIn and stuff like very complimentary so that that's all been good you know it's like when you're writing about someone who's more known in Canada and even like Atlanta Canada like you know that there's a limited, you know, there is a, a ceiling for like the market for the book. So, you know, it's not going to sell like 2 million copies, but um, you know, I've been happy with it so far. And, you know, for me, it's just been rewarding getting to this point anyway. You talk about immersing yourself into it. How do you separate yourself from that at the end of the day? I guess it goes back to that thing about Risley being such a workaholic, like, I don't, I don't know. I just find like sometimes, you know, you can get so caught up in your thoughts, but you just try, I don't know, just try to be like more present. And my kids are eight and almost six. So once you get near them, it's like, it's hard not to be sucked into the like tornado of chaos. So it's sort of like that in itself pulls you out of thinking about anything else. But I mean, it's also different. Like Risley's son told me that, you know, his dad didn't attend a single one of his like sporting events when he was a kid. 
Whereas like my son's got basketball practice tonight. He's only eight, but like, I'm excited to actually go and watch the practice. So, you mm-hmm. know, it's also just like personality wise and like trying to balance things, you know, a little bit, a bit better. So, yeah. There's the part where you'd rather be on the other side of the, the mic. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly. It's, off, it's obvious. <laughs> I'm, re- I'm reading the body language and I'm going, oh, he's squirming. Yeah, yeah. Do we keep going here? Yeah. What do we do? Um, I'm always so interested in for authors where it is like, it's such a creative, like self-propelled process of like, like, are you eight to five sitting in your office writing? Like, what does what does a day look like for you? Like when I was going through this, it's like, Drop my kids off at school like a little after eight and then get at my desk at 8.30 and try to be productive for like six hours of like good productivity. And, you know, my wife is the real breadwinner in the family. So, you know, anything to do with like, you know, when the kids are sick, which they seem like they're sick all the time or like, you know, in services and all this other stuff, that's all take care of that stuff. But that's why doing this kind of work is good because it's not like daily time sensitive like I've said to Dave before, like, I don't know, I didn't have kids when I worked at the TJ, but a lot of the people there did. And, you know, they would be sort of stressed to get out of there at the end of the day. And, and you know, you can't relate to it, too. You're sort of in that situation. So, again, I, I guess I'm squirming again. But, uh, you know, I read that book, Calvin Newport. I think I got the name right. Deep Work. You know, and that, that was, I don't read a lot of those sort of like books in that vein, but that was a really interesting one about needing to have like committed time where you're not distracted and that to do anything any significant work like in any field whether it's like engineering or music or anything like you have to have those blocks of time where you're only focusing like on one thing and that people think they can multitask really well but really mm-hmm. most people can't so that you, you need to be focused on it so that's what like I would just try to have those blocks of like a day of like I said I, I find like my brain's fried after like six hours so like six hours of like solid like mental work but yeah I really enjoyed that book and I'd recommend it to anyone who does any kind of like work like that because I think it's there's a lot of lessons in there but like the need to be focused and not just be all over the place which a lot of us are yeah and how kind of like busyness being a multitasker is kind of a badge of honor and of like oh you're a good multitasker and then it's like wait a minute like what is actually good about that and when is it good to be able to just dial in and focus on one task at hand and how effective is it oh yeah definitely (laughs) you've written three books have you ever got to a point where you're like deep in and think, man, I don't know if I have something here. Like, have I just wasted the last two months? Is there any point where you start questioning, like, is this a book or do you know what I mean? Like, cause I, that would be, I think that would be a big fear I would have if you start, you know, cause there's some risk in this inherent in this in terms of time spent and energy spent and, you know, wanting to make sure you can see a finish line I would expect, but what's that like? My other books, well, all three of them have been published by Nimbus, which is in Halifax. But I didn't go to them with this until I was probably like half, maybe half done it. So, you know, I I don't like to really mention anything like it or mention it to the publisher or anything until like I know, you know, it's like I get to the point where I know I can deliver something because I would just hate to, you know, like commit to something. You sign a contract, you know, and then you can't like live up to it. And like you said, maybe you realize that it's not very substantive and you just want to bail on it, but then you sort of feel like you can't. So yeah, no, I just, 
I made a point of like working on it for quite a while before. And then the pitch is better too, because then you have a better sense of what you have and you can say, you know, I have this and people have said this about him and it's, you know, there's more to this guy as opposed to I'm hoping to interview a bunch of people and I'm hoping there'll be something interesting. So yeah, it makes the pitch stronger as well, I guess. Did that concern you about not having people to interview, like, or would people actually, prior to your pitch to the publisher, obviously, because you were well into it, but, you know, would people open up and even talk about him? Would his friends talk about him? I mean, I guess he talked, started with his brother-in-law, so that maybe gave you some indication, but I imagine there's some people who wouldn't probably want to have anything to do with it. Uh, yeah, there was definitely a few people who didn't talk to me at all, but really, I talked to pretty much every, like, principal person in his life other than um, his first wife, Judy, because um, while I was writing the book, they were actually in court fighting about their divorce settlement. So there was like quite a bit of acrimony there. So um, mm. I wasn't able to speak to her, but I, I interviewed both his kids and yeah, every, every principal person. People were reluctant at first though, because, and I think like sort of rightly so, people are suspicious, like, you know, like, what are you getting at with this? You know, um, like Brendan Paddock in particular, I was, after him quite a number of times like you know would like to speak with you because you couldn't write anything about columbus communications without talking to brendan paddock so he was very important and um like he told me after he was just concerned about protecting risley you know like you know he didn't know what my motivations were like some sort of takedown piece or you know that kind of thing um so i guess i just tried to uh explain to people what i was really interested in like it wasn't just the last chapter of the book is a lot about the interpersonal things and his divorce and the followed from that and remarriage and the sort of more the family tensions and stuff. But I think I showed people that I put a lot of effort into researching the details of the businesses and all this kind of stuff that it was about trying to get at like every aspect of his life, not just a sort of a gossipy like tell all about the stuff in the family closet type thing. What stood out to me is even at the beginning of when I asked why he said yes to you. And what I took from that was that you had already established a relationship and trust within him. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I try, I did try to make him realize that I was interested in exploring, like I said, points about his career and that, you know, that I, that I guess that I was sincere in it. Like, I think I just wanted to show that I was sincere in why I was trying to do it. Um, you know, I wasn't just trying to embarrass him and just get at the salacious stuff. So you'd have to ask him whether he trusted me or not. But yeah, <laughs> he's he's on next. So we'll find out <laughs> yeah. um, what uh, <laughs> another another uh, piece that I just wanted to touch on, because it's just, you know, the, the importance of risk taking and like what you know, what you learn, because. Actually, this is really, I'm, I'm, as an entrepreneur, I'm always interested in the perspective on risk. And there must have been some points that were really challenging in his career and things could have gone completely the other way. And even when you described, you know, the failures of those first businesses and that sort of thing. So, you know, it wasn't like he was immune to, to failing and understanding what the cost of failing would, you know, entail as well. Right. For sure. Even, um, you know, like successful entrepreneurs, um, like in Nova Scotia, George R. Moyne is a big developer, a successful entrepreneur and people like him, they all say that, nobody is a risk taker like Risley is like by the any Canadian standard of like risk taking entrepreneur that he is in like the elite of the elite because he's always everything is always in the middle of the table and always has been so he just has that mindset where he's okay skating along the edge for like long periods of time where he knows 
full well that the whole thing could go down the tubes and like hundreds of million dollars could be lost and that kind of thing. So, and the returns obviously like reflect the risk, but he's borrowing money to pump into investments. So it's not like he's just taking from his bank account and putting these amounts into companies. Like he's borrowing, you know, whatever percent. And, you know, the rationale is that, you know, then you're going to, get a multiple when the business sells and you know that that return is going to weigh away the cost the borrowing costs so like one of his friends uh, David Himmelman who runs another fishing company around here said his liquidity probably sometimes is like next to zero you know he's super rich but like he probably has very little liquidity just because he's so he's so invested in everything and you know David Himmelman said that he would have an absolute heart attack if he was going about things like John Risley was but that's that's just one of the things and you know you can't like you can't teach that or anything and you can't sort of like emulate that because it's like you just have it or you don't but yeah no he's just uh he's full on all the time and like the stuff he's invested in now he's you know in biofuels and electric vehicles and protein from crickets and all kinds of like he's in all kinds of stuff and just pushing you know more and more money into it. and he's there's a big uh, project in Stephenville that he's involved with with world energy where they're trying to with wind power and stuff like that. So yeah, no, he's, and he's still out at mid seventies, still like pumping huge amounts of money in these investments. It's pretty incredible. And a follow-up to that would be like, you probably know more about him than anyone. Like, where do you think that comes from that drive? Is there a childhood story there or how he grew up or what would you think? Yeah. I mean, like I said, he, like his dad died when he was 15. So it was him and some siblings were still at home and, you know, his mom sort of had to, like I said, they, he, it's not like they were, they were not poor. The, the McDonald's on, by contrast, were poor uh, in Halifax. So, you know, there were seven McDonald kids and they were very poor, grew up in Fairview and like half of them are multimillionaires now. But, you know, I think Risley said he had that sort of sense like ingrained when he was a kid that he had to contribute in some way, like very early on had to like contribute in some way to the household. So I think that's part of it. But you know, his like his Scottish headmaster at school when he was like 10 or 12 asked the class, you know, what does everyone want to be when they grow up? And you got the normal like doctors, lawyers, that kind of thing. And his goal was to be a millionaire. Like, you know, so that's what he was thinking about at that age. So I think some of it's just I think some of it's just there. And, you know, like when you're super rich and you don't really want for anything and you're in your mid 70s and you're still doing like really risky investments and mm he helped bring MDA, the space company sort of repatriated from the States back to Canada, which was like an enormous deal. Um, you know, I think it's just, I think it's really more innate. I think it's just like aptitudes. And I think like, that's just sort of like the way he's, the way he's made up because why else would you be doing it still in your seventies when you don't have to, it's not like he's doing it for work or he has to pay the mortgage. Like it's, you know, he's doing it because he really wants to. What's next for you, Quentin? I don't have anything uh, big on the horizon. I'm doing some work with Dave, which is, yeah, it's been really nice to um, connect with Dave again and do some work together. But yeah, no, I don't have any book projects or anything like that. I'm really trying to promote this one. There's like like a finite window of time where you can sort of maybe try to grab people's interest. So yeah, just trying yeah. to promote it as much as I can and get the word out. Yeah. Who do you think the majority of buyers have been? Entrepreneurs? It's a good question. You know, Amazon has the categories where the book is like in its rankings and things. And it's, you know, it's in the entrepreneurship category and the 
titans of industry category and stuff like that. So there's a huge appetite for those books where, you know, people are looking for like inspiration, but also a bit of a how to on, you know, how, how can I be successful like this person? That's obviously like a huge segment of the book market. Um, and it's interesting because in within that Amazon category, like at one point the book was like number four and it was the new Elon Musk book and the Steve Jobs book and the, another one, you know, which I think is like, that speaks to Risley's story about how interesting he is, you know, more than anything else that, you know, people... That, that I think that see, also very speaks to the author too, wouldn't it? Mm. You know, like you're up there with Isaac. <laughs> What's yeah. that? Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, well, sorry, Walter Isaacson. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, uh, I'm just. Yeah. I had to look over the Steve Jobs book to remember who. Well done, man. That's amazing. Well, thanks. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. It slipped back down, but yeah, it was there. Yeah. Not after this well, podcast. Now that it's been it. on the boiling point, <laughs> you watch it rise yeah. to number one. It's gonna have to go to print again. <laughs> um, can we can we tell can we tell one Dave Stonehouse story that I found found really funny? Given what you do and your you know how you dig into to um, an individual and learn about him, you know when and Dave's gonna he's gonna he's gonna deny this, I guarantee. But he he was uh, his concern with my column because I go and I talk to people about leadership, and I it was a really neat way for me to meet. Not not do obviously nearly the deep dive. I'm not a journalist, but I just do a Q and A, and um, and I get to meet meet these entrepreneurs all over the region. And what I found interesting was there's all these people doing these amazing things, but they don't necessarily know each other, or we don't know about them. So this was a chance to interview some other people. Anyways, so Dave gave me this couple. I'll give you two or three or whatever. So I was just oh wow, this is great. I'm one of the most you know well paid columnists according to him. <laughs> at the time <laughs> so anyhow how, having said all that it was a neat opportunity for me but he said you know dave atlanta canadians don't like to talk about themselves or you're going to have a real problem i i think and i was new to atlanta canada and i didn't find that to be an issue at all and it wasn't that they were talking about themselves but they people like mm. talking about their businesses and like you know and, and sharing their wisdom and sharing their lessons and all that kind of thing so maybe that's probably helped i'm always curious how you know we can get people to open up because you know, at times people would say exactly what some of the people around Risley would have said to you, which is like, what's your motivation here, right? And I, mm -hmm. I think if your motivation is to tell just a real, like you have a really excellent story, well-researched, you know, people are pretty giving of their time. Does that ring true for you? Yeah, I think so. I think people are just suspicious and are fearful of getting burned, I think, you know, and I think it's just a little bit of a commentary on like media in general. So yeah, no, I think, I think that's, I think that's spot on. I think that people are a little bit leery until they can sort of figure out what, what your angle is. I think they're always just worried about what your angle is. Yeah. Well, Quentin, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. And thank you for uh, being the one in the hot seat and letting us, I guess, not so even so much interview, more have a conversation with you yeah 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 <laughs> yeah yeah and so for all of our listeners we're going to list all of your information and any extras that we discussed including the links to your book and the other books in the show notes the best place for everyone to find all of that is on our website at boilingpointpodcast.com and the video will be on youtube and facebook and of course the podcast is available on all of your favorite podcasts platform. So Quentin, thank you so much. Thanks very much. Really appreciate it. 
Bye. See you, Quentin. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. Follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app or visit boilingpointpodcast.com for more. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on blasttheradio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's blasttheradio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter.